We are talking about the Bible for grown-ups, and primarily it's because um, for many of us, we don't really understand very well the story of how we got the Bible. We maybe remember how we got our Bible, like that children's Bible, but we don't really understand and remember very well the story of, of how we got the Bible. And so the problem is, is that the story, uh, the story of the Bible, I feel like, is extraordinarily important in today's culture, and not just the stories in the Bible. Okay, not just the stories in the Bible, but the story of how did we get this book? I want to start off by reading this text that I really think is going to be our kind of our core theme verse for the series. This is Paul's words to Timothy. He tells him that all scripture is inspired by God and useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it, okay, to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Many adults in the church, um, you know, again, kind of learned this. If you were raised in church, um, you would have understood this, that there would have been a lot of words around the holy word of God and the inerrant word of God and the idea of the you know, the, the way in which your Bible was sort of uh, given to you. Children would learn it this way in a really cool little song called, Jesus Loves Me, This I Know. And hopefully you can finish <laughs> the end of that in terms of this whole song. Jesus Loves Me, This I Know, for the Bible tells me so. Which, believe it or not, is true. That's, I mean, that's a true statement. I love, I love that song. But the point of this series in terms of the story of the Bible, the Bible for grown-ups, is how do we take sort of that childish understanding of the Bible, maybe how you received your first Bible, and let it grow into an adult version, an adult version of your faith that understands not just the stories in the Bible, but the story of the Bible, and helps give us a proper foundation of understanding that this really, this collection of 66 uh, books and documents and poems and, and letters and, and, and accounts that have been recorded um, how in the world do we stand on a foundation when all we have is a childlike faith, or a childish faith is really what I would say, more not a childlike faith, but a childish faith. We need the Bible for grown-ups. We need to have an understanding of this. Maybe you were told when you got your first Bible, maybe it looked a little bit more like this. You got your first Bible, and it was like, you know, a real, first like real Bible, you, maybe it was like genuine imitation leather, Right? And if you were anything like me, uh, there was a big time in which your name was on the outside in gold leaf, genuine gold leaf lettering. Your name was on the front. And when they handed the Bible to you, maybe depending on how you were raised, they handed the Bible to you and they said, look, this is all true, right? Maybe they used other language like, well, this is God's love letter to you. This is the roadmap for life. There's lots of ways in which they were, you know, oftentimes we were given our first Bible and maybe we even believed things about the Bible before we ever even read the Bible. And that's really a part of what we're struggling with in today's culture is that once upon a time, a person had to read the Bible to know what was in the Bible. That your parents' generation and beyond, they actually had to crack it open. They actually had to read it. <laughs> in order to know what was in it. 
And that's just not the case. The last 25 to 30 years, it's not the case anymore. And the problem is, is that when you don't have to open it up to know what's in it because of all the information that you get that you can look up yourself or that you just, people just hear from other people about what's in the Bible, is where a lot of the problem comes when all you have is the childish faith of, well, Jesus loves me, this I know, because the Bible told me so. Because the problem with that is that if I can convince you that the Bible isn't what you think the Bible is, even though you've not cracked it open and read it, then I can somehow derail your faith because your faith has the wrong foundation. Listen, some of us here, some of us here do not struggle with what the Bible says. Maybe you were raised in a house or in a church environment where the, if the Bible says it, that settles it, Right? If the Bible says it, that settles it. That's all you need to know. Some of you want to just hold on to the things that you know that, you know, Jesus loves you and he died for you and, and the church is here for you. That God created man and woman in their own, in his image, and, and he loves us, intrinsically loves his creation. And some of us really don't have a problem with some of those things. However, we're in a culture where many of us struggle with what else the Bible says. What else it says about incest and polygamy and genocide and slavery and earth-destroying events and story after story that's with impossible outcomes that seem to feel more like a Game of Thrones episode, like fiction, than something historically written and accurate. The rapid changing of our culture has given us some problems when it comes to just sort of thinking that our foundation really is the Bible in terms of our faith. And, and I want, I don't, don't turn it off yet. I want you to understand we're going somewhere today, okay? The church's response to our current culture has been apologetics, right? Apologetics. Let's defend the Bible, Let's take people down a, a, you know, a, 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 you know, a, an online course of how we know everything in here is true and let's defend what's been written. Let's defend when it was written and who it was written by and let's talk about it in a way that really feels like this defense has to mount. And, and don't get me wrong, I love apologetics. I love the defense of the scriptures. But for most of us, let's just be honest, most of us are never going to have the opportunity in someone else's life to explain to have the time to explain the full background and context that we would need to do in order to take someone through the defense of Scripture. And let's be really honest, you don't really want to take the time to learn that yourself because you also have remained in this sort of this childish faith with your childish idea of where your faith is founded in terms when it comes to the story of the Bible. And so I really think there's a better way. And this, this is a series that we are, um, we're teaching uh, that the, the, the trailer you saw was created by another church uh, that we, we love and, and, and uh, support. And at the end of the day, I want to just bring you sort of my version of this particular series because our story of how we get the Bible, and I started this last week on Easter, really kind of doesn't start here at the beginning. It starts towards the end of the middle. It starts, to, it starts at the end. So the, sort of like the last thing is first, so to speak, in terms of our story of the Bible. And understanding this is critical to be able to have the right foundation 
for your faith, for your adult version of faith, and to be able to help you when it comes to how you view and understand and approach what we, you know, look in terms of the, the Scriptures, approach these 66 individual books. The story of the Bible reminds us this. It reminds us that Christianity doesn't exist because of the Bible. No more than you exist because of your birth certificate, right? Like, that's not just a play on words. Like, the birth, your birth certificate is not the reason that you exist. And it's the same thing. Christianity does not exist because of the Bible, and this is, and I know it seems simple, but let's just continue down this path just to really kind of help you understand. This is, this is so supreme in terms of its importance of the foundation of adult faith. The Constitution didn't found our nation. It didn't. The company handbook didn't start your company. And the Bible didn't launch Christianity. Everybody with me? It didn't launch Christianity. We cannot be so foolish and so unwise as to try to build faith on something that isn't the foundation of our faith. The Constitution didn't found our nation, and I'm telling you, the Bible did not launch Christianity. I know it sounds simple, but we have to remember, as we talked about last week, that the foundation of our faith is an event. It's a person. Not a religious set of rules, not a system of beliefs, not, you know, it's, it's, it's a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. Here's the way Paul uh, says it to the church in Ephesus. He says, together we are his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and the cornerstone is Jesus Christ himself. The cornerstone <laughs> is Jesus. Everything is built from him. He is the foundation. He is the reason we have our faith. And so as I started last week, and some of this will be a recap, but as I started last week in terms of Easter, talking about just what we call the Gospels, right, the first four books of the New Testament, in terms of why they were written and, and why it was so significant in terms of why there was the resurrection, you know, so significant in terms of why we have what we have. Here's what Luke said in Luke 1. Many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. Luke said, look, there's, there's many people who have gone out to try to, try to record and write down and, and give you an account of the events that were fulfilled, right? And I said this last week, and again, this is just a reminder that something, something was written because something extraordinary happened. Something was written the reason we have Luke and the reason we have Matthew's account to the, to the Jews and the reason we have Peter's account through Mark and the reason we have John's account of Jesus Christ's life is because something happened. It's the event that changed history. It's the person that our faith is founded on. And so in order to kind of walk us through again how we approach this, I have to take you through a little bit of a timeline, and I want this time, I don't want it to be too academic for you, but I want to highlight a few things that I think are really, really important for us to start here today and as we continue next week to understand the timeline of how we approach Scripture, how we approach this book. The first thing I'll, I'll talk about again from last week is, 
And again, this is, you know, the Julian calendar, the Gregorian calendar, there's a bunch of context I can give you, but just, just understand the, the way time was divided B.C. and A.D. doesn't sometimes line up with what you and I think because of the way the Julian calendar was at the time and the Gregorian calendar. Like, like basically the way it currently sits in terms of the Gregorian calendar, Jesus was born three years before, like 3 B.C. We do believe that according to time, the time we have now, that it was around 30 A.D., well, we had the crucifixion, the resurrection, and about two and a half months later, because of Jesus, you know, Jesus was around for another 40 days, talking to eyewitnesses, hanging out with the disciples, teaching, preaching, doing before his ascension. It was about two and a half-ish months before the church was born, before the, the, the coming of the Holy Spirit, before Pentecost, before the, the first century church was launched by the power of God. And that was all in 30 A.D. And then the next event that I want you to just think about, because this is a part, again, part of how we approach Scripture, is in 70 A.D., there was an event that happened. And it was the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. Now, this was not a one-time, this was not just a, a, this was such a huge deal to them in terms of the people who lived during that time and lived in that area. And it was a, about a five-year event where the emperor was trying to uh, take over um, and kind of crushed the rebellion from the Jewish. He, he viewed in terms of the Jewish faith and Jewish religion to Rome. You know, they were, they were threatening Rome. And the emperor finally, you know, made some strides. Then he left his son Titus to, to sort of finish off sort of the, the, the job. And Titus would, would set up camp outside of, for years, set up camp outside of Jerusalem and would crucify hundreds upon hundreds of Jews every day. And finally, when he breached the city walls, they killed thousands. They burned the temple to the ground. Eventually, they took hundreds, if not thousands more, into slavery between there and Rome. And eventually, they would expel all Jews from Jerusalem. And I, I know we can't even fathom this, but this was such a significant event that happened in the year 70 AD. Now, what's interesting about that is that for some reason, none of the New Testament manuscripts that we have in terms of our New Testament seem to reference this significant event. They don't even seem to mention it at all. And the reason we believe that's the case is because, logically, it hadn't happened yet. Logically, it hadn't happened yet. Now, there are some, some letters, a few things that they feel like maybe were written afterwards that didn't mention it in terms of a timestamp, but but for the majority of our New Testament manuscripts, like we believe logically that it didn't happen yet. So it's a significant thing to see in terms of what we do. Listen, the way, the way they recorded things was not like um, the way we record stories. Okay? These are Jewish people. Most of them are Jewish people. And they all have this, um, this historical um, example for them of the Jewish scribes of how they recorded and documented history. And that's how they write. Matter of fact, I'll give you one quick example because Luke is a great example of this. When Luke writes his gospel, when he writes what we call the gospel, he writes his account. Let's go to Luke 3. Just to give you an example, he says, It is now the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, the Roman emperor. Pontius Pilate was governor over Judea. Herod Antipas was the ruler of Galilee, and his brother Philip was the ruler over Eturia and, uh, what does that say? Trichonatus? Yeah. 
and Lysanias, they were rulers of Abilene. And Annas and Caiaphas were the high priests. Now, why would Luke write all of that? This was Luke, this is modern language, but this was Luke's version of saying, fact check me. Fact check me. This is what was happening. Here, when was this written again? Oh, hundreds and hundreds of years after, you know, Jesus, after the event of this man. He just says, no, Luke was writing the account and he wanted to make sure you knew when the account was written, when certain things happened. Fact check him. Here's the people. Here's the rulers. Here's the time frame that we're in. That was his way of doing it. And all of these manuscripts that we have, all of these letters, go back to last week, what we talked about in terms of the, the resurrection testimony, that there are 27, 27 books and letters and documents that would really be a better way of describing our New Testament in terms of being able to look and say, well, this is, this is Paul. This is a letter that Paul wrote to the church. This is Romans where Paul wrote a huge letter to the church, to the people in Rome when he was in a jail cell. We know that from that period of time, these things were written and these things were recorded and they were copied. And they were copied. Now here's what I want you to understand. The reason they were copied is because they were so precious and so valuable and there was only a few things, and so we, we see this explosion happen in this period of time in the first century where they are, they are literally, painstakingly, you don't understand the expense that it went to in order for them to get the wax tablets and things necessary to even copy a portion of a letter or to copy a page of one of the Gospels. And yet that's what they did. Why did they do it? Because they, couldn't, they can't run down to Kinko's, right? They can't run down to Quick Copy. Like, for example, this is one of the arguments that people make is that, well, these, all the Gospels in the New Testament, all that's written hundreds of years later, and it's all about a myth and, you know, the myth of Jesus, and they wanted to believe he was alive, and, and, they, and all of a sudden that myth and legend sort of became like, you know, oh I, th- oh, I think I saw him down by the river, kind of like we talk about ghosts, you know, haunting your Aunt Gina's house, like, oh, I think I saw, you know, I heard something, and, and, and all of a sudden they're like, well, let's write this, these documents down hundreds of years later to create this religion. That's just, there's no evidence to that whatsoever. As a matter of fact, the people that argue that are so ignorant and so lazy because they don't want to put the effort in to realize that it's just not possible. Oh, we have copies after copies after copies. That's true. And there are variants, absolutely. As a matter of fact, one of the best things about having hundreds of copies of the same thing is that they're able to tell all the variants that are there. And as far as we can tell in terms of the study that's been done, is that even in all the variants of the copies of the manuscripts, there is zero change in terms of theology. Zero change. Zero difference in terms of historical fact. This is a big deal, guys, when it comes to how we view this and how we approach our scriptures, the New Testament scriptures. Again, we have 27, and that's going to be decided. I'll tell you a timeline in terms of history. There's some other things written, letters and documents. And the reason they were so valuable was because of who wrote them and what they contained and when they were written. Who wrote them? Okay? That's one of the reasons even in Acts we see where, where they, they start dividing up the, the, the tasks among deacons and elders because the apostles, 
the ones who walked with Jesus, the ones who, who saw him resurrected, they needed to continue to simply teach and, and, and dictate and help churches understand what they experienced themselves. That was why it was so critical for them to simply do that because, because who wrote them was important. What they contained was important. And it was so precious and so valuable to have a portion of something or to have the book of John in your hands that we see later on that they would, people would be crucified over this. People would be persecuted over this. People would be put to death in, in the Colosseums over this because they had a portion of these rare and precious documents. And listen, they didn't, they didn't hold on to it because it was the Bible. They held on to it because Paul, Paul who had seen Jesus on the road to Damascus, Paul who had helped plant the church, Paul, who was sharing the transformation of his life in Christ, wrote this content about Jesus. And they considered it so precious and so valuable that they would protect it, and they would copy it, and they would share it in homes and in groups. No matter what they had, they would do all that they could. Now, next week we'll talk about the the 39 books in the, in the Old Testament, the Jewish Scripture. We'll talk more about that. But right now, I just want you to think about just the New Testament, the, the, the Christian, if you will, texts that came out of this time frame. One more example in terms of, in terms of a time stamp is a great example of Paul. Okay, we know Paul. talked a little bit about last week about Paul's story. And Paul's story is huge. Why? Because he wrote some of it. 13 letters we have recorded. We believe he wrote more. But 13 is what we have. All right? And most secular scholars will acknowledge between seven to nine, most secular scholars will acknowledge that Paul wrote at least seven to nine of the letters that we know of the 13 letters we have. He clarifies the relationship between the parts of it. We'll talk more about that next week, but he does such an amazing job clarifying the parts of the Jewish text and the New Testament texts. And most importantly, today I want to talk about how he authenticates the most important event recorded in it. He authenticates the most important event recorded in it. Go to the next timeline. And right here in the middle of where we believe all of those documents were created, in the year 55 AD, again, most secular scholars all agree on this, that, he, that Paul was a real guy. He was a real leader. They believe that he, he went to this place in Corinth where we believe in 52 he planted the church, and they all will acknowledge that he wrote letters to these churches. And 1 Corinthians is what I want to look at today, because in 1 Corinthians, this first letter to Corinth that we have, he authenticates again the foundation. He goes back constantly to the foundation, foundation, foundation of our faith in Jesus Christ. Let's go to verse, uh, chapter 15, verse 1. Let me remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news, Jesus. I preached to you before. Again, he was there. He helped plant the church. You welcomed it then, and you still stand firm in it. It is the good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you. Unless, of course, you believe something that was never true in the first place. He's like, look, I can't control your filter. But if you believe the good news that I preached to you, you believe in something that saved you. I pass this on to you. <coughs> what was most important, 
and what had also been passed on to me. Paul, again, from his conversations with Peter and all the other eyewitnesses, like these, these, this is the stuff that's passed to each other. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as scriptures said. He was seen by Peter. And then by the 12, and after that he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died or fallen asleep, it even says. It says, and then he was seen by James, his brother, and later by all the apostles. And he says, last of all, as though I'd been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. This is Paul saying, look, I have also seen him. This is his road to Damascus moment. But what's unique about, again, the the first Corinthian letter is that when it was written in 55 AD, Paul uses at the end of this letter a creed. It's not, it's not, you have to look at the Greek text to see the fullness of of the, the way in which the creed is written. But a creed, listen, for the most part, even in this time and day, we don't really understand this, but so much was done in oral tradition. Right? And so they would craft these statements, they would craft these theological statements called creeds. So they could be passed down from person to person. They could be passed down from pastors to churches. They could be shared with one another. They were these creeds, again, creeds, statements that because people couldn't read or couldn't write, even when they were hearing the, you know, the book of, or the, the gospel of John read to them, then they would hear a creed and they would hold on to it. Kind of like we do with music, with songs in terms of choruses get stuck in our head. It's very, very similar, these creeds. And here's the creed that he uses at the end of his letter to Corinth. You see it in the verses we just read. The creed kind of has a cadence to it, even in English. Christ died for our sins and was buried. He rose from the dead and was seen. Now, I know many of you guys at home, you don't sing because you're there with your family and you're in your living room or you're sitting at your computer or on your phone. And I understand that's a little hard to sing to, but I know that all of you can read out loud what I'm reading right now, so I want you to read it out loud with me. Okay, this is the creed we're going to read together. Christ died for our sins and was buried. He rose from the dead and was seen. This is so significant to Paul's letter in terms of the time stamp, again, in terms of how we approach this letter, that, this first letter that he wrote to the, to the church in Corinth, how do we understand why it was so precious, why it was so valuable, why was it such a big deal? Because Paul's letter, Paul's letter to the Corinth believers is indisputable evidence that Jesus' resurrection was accepted as fact immediately, not eventually. 25 years afterwards, while there's still eyewitnesses, Paul says over 500, many are still alive. I can introduce you to them. I can give you their name. You can, you can WhatsApp them. You can let them know. You can connect with them yourself. Christ died for our sins and was buried. He rose again and was seen. This was a creed that they had already accepted as fact in 55 AD when this letter to Corinth was written. This is how the church exploded in the first, second, and third century. They would, people would hear in home churches that, oh, James, James wrote a letter. Did you, did you get that? James wrote something to his church, to the Jewish believers. Did you see the brother of James? He, he wrote something, and, 
And they, and they would find it, they would copy it, and they would get what they can and share it with one another. And Paul's letters and, and, and Peter's dictate some things. And there's some other, you know, write, you know a, a word to the Hebrew nation. All these texts and documents that would, that would literally, listen, I'm just, I just want you to understand, they were so precious and so valuable to the New Testament church for hundreds and hundreds of years. Going back to the timeline, just again to kind of close us down. Between this time frame of the temple being destroyed and what we believe most of the documents were written, in the second and third century is a huge time of persecution for the church. Again, this goes back to the time in which they were persecuted for, for not just, they were persecuted by Rome, they were persecuted by the religious, by the, by the Jewish religion. They were persecuted by the Greek and, and barbarians for, for their beliefs. They were persecuted for, across the board. They were thrown into pits with lions. They were challenged constantly with, 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 the, with what they believed, with what they claimed to believe, with the few things. And listen, talk about darkest before the dawn. I mean, Constantine is what we're looking at here in the year 312. But listen, right, but even before Constantine, we're talking about the darkest before the dawn. The Emperor, Dio, Emperor Diocletian, he, he set out to destroy Christianity, very much like Paul did. He set out to destroy the, the sacred texts of his people. He set out to destroy every copy and every existence that was ever made in that time frame that we're talking about. He would kill Christians. He would burn their documents. And people gave their lives. They gave their lives for a, for a portion of John's gospel. They would, they would hide things and they would save things and they would, and they would give, really give their lives for this. This is what this meant to them. Not because it was the Bible. Everybody with me still? But because this was because of who wrote it and what it contained and when it was written of the eyewitness account of the Jesus Christ that they had had an encounter with personally. Constantine is a huge deal in terms of our history because Constantine, he would defeat two other emperors and he would work to unite the empire to kind of create sort of the strength of Rome again. But there was such a tipping point of believers at this point, even again, even though Diocletian right before this, you know, 15 years before this, had tried to stamp out the texts and the documents and the believers of the way, of the first century church and second century and third century church, guys, that, Chris, that Constantine would eventually lift the restrictions from Christians being able to worship their God. Now, it wasn't because Constantine, listen to this, it wasn't because he was a Christian. All, all historical records tell us that he was not a Christian then. All right? His mom was, believe it or not, his mom, before he had lifted the restrictions, had become a follower of Jesus. 
Constantine did it to unite the empire. He did it as a political move to bring people together, to bring back the strength of Rome, knowing that there was this huge influx, this huge spread of this religion, of this, of this sect, Jewish sect, called the church. And he said, it's okay, you're, you're allowed to meet. And, and he freed up the church not only to meet, but he freed up all the scribes and all the scholars to come out of hiding and to start collecting and putting all this together and bringing about all the documents and as many as they could find because they were able to, they were able to be funded. They could fund the work that needed to be done because they were now out in the open. They were now open up to do this. You don't see the time on there, but 350 is right about the time we see the, the Jewish scripture and the collection at that time of the New Testament scripture, we call it the New Testament and the Old Testament. But about 350, the, the, uh, it was called the Cotex, I've got to read my right words, it was called the Cotex uh, Vaticanus. And, and, and that was the first time they'd ever had the Jewish text and the Christian New Testament text put together. The very first time. It would still be another 38 years before anyone would ever see this. The Bible. Ta Biblia, if you will. 38 AD. is the first time anyone ever would ever see this. And guys, let me just keep telling you, it was still hundreds of years <laughs> before multiple copies of this were made. And hundreds and hundreds of more years before churches had their own full copy. And over a thousand plus years before the printing press and the ability to have a, a, you know, a Bible in every home. Even though it was still expensive. Even though, guys, just, just if you don't hear anything else today, just, just understand our approach to this book is important. The story of how we got this book is important because of the foundation of our faith. Several councils would still meet in that time frame. The Council of Carthage, which is the kind of the most well-known one that gives us what we have in terms of our 66 books of the Bible. But even before this, never forget, for over 300 years, Christians believed that Jesus loved them. Guys, longer than our country has even existed. Christians believed that Jesus died for our sins and was buried, rose again and was seen. For over 300 years, Christians believed that Jesus loved them before the Bible told them so. Are you understanding this? Do you see the significance of this? In terms of your faith, in terms of how you respond in a post-Christian culture that wants to bring about all the doubts and all the, well, here's what else the Bible says, and how do you explain what else it says? And you don't have the time, you've barely read it yourself enough to have the defense of what you believe and what you were told and how you were raised. Because you're still sitting with a children's Bible that you haven't touched in years and you shoved it into a counter, into a, into a bag, you, sh you put it on a counter, you put it on a bookshelf. And you have no foundation of understanding that our faith, 
Our faith came long before the Bible. Our faith in Jesus Christ, who transforms our lives, is not founded on the fact that the Bible tells me so. It's founded on the fact that Mark told me because he talked with Peter and Paul told me because he had this transformational um, experience on the road to Damascus. And see how messy it is? This is just the way it works. Because I have this letter from John who wanted to write the church a few letters and explain again the love of God and why the love of God matters so much in my life. Oh yeah, eventually it would become the Bible. But it's not the foundation of my faith. My faith is rooted in the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. Bottom line for today, and we're going to continue this next week because it's definitely important, especially when most of what we argue, most of what needs apologetics, most of what we have to quote-unquote try to defend are the Jewish scriptures, right? The New Testament scriptures added to the Jewish scriptures, and most of the time people are struggling with the Jewish scriptures. We're going to talk more about that next week. It's super important that you guys tune back in and connect with us next week as we finish the series. But today, bottom line, in terms of our faith, in terms of how we approach the story of our Bible, Christianity is a result of an event that created a movement. Jesus said it was called the church, that my ecclesia, my movement, the kingdom of hell would not be able to stop. It produced texts. It produced texts that were collected, protected, and eventually bound into a book. And just hear me say it. I believe that this is the infallible, holy, living, breathing, active word of God from beginning to end. I believe that with all my heart. But it wasn't until I began to understand the story of the Bible that I really began to appreciate when I read Matthew, when I read a letter that Paul wrote to the church. I understand them as individual, individual letters and accounts and, and the reason they were written. I don't look at it from a, a section of a book. I look at it from a document that made its way through history that I believe was Holy Spirit inspired through the human, through the person who wrote the account. And it, and it brings about a foundation of my faith that simply cannot, cannot be flicked away like a house of cards when somebody wants to struggle with some weird Old Testament scripture. When somebody wants to struggle with some, some date-driven thing of, well, you don't know that and we can't find the original. That, listen, we can eventually all find that answer together. But the foundation of my faith is so much more than a book. The foundation of my faith is that Jesus Christ died for my sins and was buried. He rose again and was seen. Let's pray together. Father, I pray today that a better understanding of how we received your word 
in, the, in, the, in just the only way, this unique craziness of so many different authors and so many different books over such a long period of time could even come together at some point to form the Bible. God, I hope that our understanding strengthens and increases our faith. I hope today that it wasn't just academic, that it was, that it was part of a, of, of a reshaping, if you will, of, of moving and adjusting our lives back to the cornerstone of our faith, Jesus Christ, which is you, not the church, not a system of rules, not a religion, but you, Jesus. Thank you so, so much. We pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.